0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we are excited to have Kim Witsack on our midweek podcast this week. She is going to be discussing uh, her tra- the tragic death of her husband 20 years ago or so um, when he was on antidepressants, uh, specifically sertraline, Sert- 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 which is also named the brand name Zoloft. Um, And he wasn't even depressed. So she's going to be talking about that story um, and give us some more details. But she's also an advocate just for uh, medication safety. And she has been uh, very vocal over the last few years when it comes to um, vaccine safety um, and just other drugs in general. There's a lot of drugs that get put on the market that sometimes we know aren't necessarily safe um and you know even other countries um even have taken them off the market and yet we go ahead and approve those and that just seems kind of fishy to me and we're going to be discussing that story so without further ado kim welcome to our show
1: ah good morning thanks for having me
0: yes um tell us a little bit about the background of you and your husband's story because i think that's how all this advocate work
1: started correct Correct. Um, It's why I like to call myself the accidental advocate, because I never set out to do this work. And sometimes our greatest life purposes choose us. And that's kind of how I like to look at what I do now. Um, It's my greatest purpose. So my um, husband, on August 6, 2003, so it's coming up on 20 years, I got a call from my dad that changed the trajectory of my life. I got a call that my husband of almost 10 years, Woody, was found dead hanging from the rafter of our garage, dead at age 37. And Woody was not depressed. Woody had no history of depression or any other mental illness. Woody had just started his dream job with a startup company and was having trouble sleeping and he went to his GP, his doctor that he has trusted for years. You know, I always like to call Woody the Humpty Dumpty, meaning he was a big athlete. And so the doctors fixed him. You know, when when he broke his arm, you get you get a cast on when you you know, when you he got bit in his head from somebody, bite, you know, from basketball, he got stitches, you know, so he trusted his doctor and he went in and left with a three-week pack or three week sample pack of Zoloft, an antidepressant, that was told that it would help him sleep, take the edge off and help him sleep. I happened to be out of the country um, the first three weeks that he was on the drug. I was down in New Zealand, and the, the sample pack that Woody came home with automatically doubled the dose from week one to week two. It went from 25 to 50 milligrams. So the first three weeks he was on it, no one's watching him, we had no nothing, you know, nobody told us anything would be happening. Um, I remember I came home from um, week four, I was excited to see Woody, I will never forget what happened, Woody walked through our back door, he was completely drenched um, through his blue dress shirt, and he was crying. And he fell to the floor, his hands around his head like a vice. He's like, Kim, you got to help me. I don't know what's happening to me. I'm losing my mind. You got to help me. It's like my head's outside my body looking in. And I remember like looking at him going, uh, I would never, ever seen this kind of behavior from him. So I remember we calmed him down and Um, you know, we prayed, we did breathing, we did anything to get this like head outside the body. And he called his doctor and the doctor said, you got to give it four to six weeks to kick in. And so every night, the next week of Woody's life, Woody came home and he'd be like, what do you think about hypnosis? I'm going to beat this feeling in his head. Everything was beat this feeling in his head. Now looking back, you know, I, I look at it very differently, but at that time, you know, we never, um, never questioned the drug because, why would we? It was given to him by his doctor. It was um, advertised and you know um, advertised and sold as safe and effective, and it was FDA approved. But you know, I look back and I have learned all of that um, isn't really the way it seems and the way that we believe or we blindly trust. And I was fortunate enough the night that Woody was found. The coroner had called me and I was out of town um, on business. So again, it was my busy season, but we've, we've lived this kind of life. I mean, we were, um, we both traveled a lot for business. And I remember the coroner called and asked if Woody was on any medication and the only medication, the only thing he was taking was Zoloft. And she proceeded to say, we're going to take it with us. It might have something to do with his death. And that was like, what, what? You know, like, again, my life had just fallen apart, but my brother-in-law, my family that was back in Minneapolis when the coroner said that really started to say, what? You know, that doesn't make sense. And then also the other thing that was the same night as Woody was found, the front page of our newspaper had an article that said the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. So both of those happened the same night my husband was found. And that really became the, you know, like I said, my life had just fallen apart. I'm trying to figure out how to get back to Minneapolis, um, you know, from being out of town. But my brother-in-law went home that night and Googled Zoloft and suicide. And unbeknownst to us, this the FDA had hearings in 1991 on the link between the emergence of violence and suicide with Prozac. Mm -hmm. And no, at that time, every one of those advisory board members took money from um, industry that made um, antidepressants. They all voted no and said, nope, we don't see anything. And at that time, the FDA said to Eli Lilly, you need to study suicidality. They never did. The FDA never followed up. And meanwhile, it it gets approved. All these new ones like Paxil and Zoloft get approved. And then they get approved for children. And so that really became, you know, that's the backstory of, uh, uh, and I know it's a pretty loaded backstory of all the things um, that I learned and that we had no idea because, you know, we just trusted the system and put blind trust in, but that's, that's really where it started. And it became our mission almost immediately because everything intuitively in my body was like, this doesn't make sense. What do you love life? he like, he we just booked our 10-year anniversary trip to go to Thailand. We, um, we were going on vacation with his family. We we're just starting to talk about doing in vitro to have kids. Like, the whole thing made absolutely no sense of who my husband was. And, you know, that's sometimes what it takes, you know, when you have a sudden death, um, especially something like a suicide, and it makes you just start investigating. And... We became investigators.
0: Wow, that's a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that, um, Jan. Do you have any comments or questions for Kim?
2: I do, Kim. So, what's the, what what were the first steps that you took to to start on this journey? Because you know, being an advocate now, it, it it's probably a little bit choppy. But you know, point out how that journey started and what what led you in certain directions.
1: Sure. Uh, So I would say the first thing is literally trusting my intuition, right? Mm -hmm. That something didn't make sense. So I think that was the first thing. But it was really, I think, my brother in law who started Googling and he uh, got all these books. You know, that night he didn't sleep for like a week. And this is my um, sister's husband because he was like, this doesn't make any sense. Would he kill himself? Like, this doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense. So he. Again, I think we both had that same belief, right? Uh, So ordered a bunch of books and started researching. And then when he came to me about a week after Woody's death, I remember all of a sudden like having sleepless nights, never slept uh, because we were literally researching everything. We have binders worth of our own research that was just from the internet. And, you know, and... I say then, you know, now we're seeing a little bit other behaviors of Google. But thank God for Google back then, because, you know, we. I had no idea about the 1991. What, how did they ever, like, learn what was happening in another country? So it was a lot of research, research, books. Then the books had, uh, you know, some of them, one, you know, they were the two probably big famous um uh, Psychiatrists that were out, out speaking out on the dangers. It was David Healy, Dr. David Healy, out of the UK, and he was really instrumental in getting the um, the warnings and um, attraction in the UK. And then um, also Peter Bragan also had some books and really just reading, researching, and not, and also. Questioning when the doctor, everybody was saying, Well, he must have been depressed. You know, I remember going to, uh, you know, because I was going to like, couldn't be in this stage of like, Oh my God, this is going to be the rest of my life. I went to a suicide support group that I have subsequently found out gets funding from pharma. Uh, It's really interesting. But when I was at this suicide support group, the first night I went, because, you know, what else are you supposed to do? Isn't that what you're supposed to do after somebody dies, you go to a support group. And I went the first night, and it was probably two weeks now after Woody died. And I remember, like, sitting around this room with all of these, like, other people who have had had been maybe years full since their loved one um, had died. And I remember I said, I think it was the drugs. And somebody, like, the woman who was responsible or running it, uh, she's was like, remember tapping me on the head. She goes, Oh honey, we never like, you're just, you know, basically you're a widow looking for an excuse, um, of the drugs. These, you know, we never saw our loved one. I'm like, no, I'm telling you like, and I was super at this point adamant. And they, and at that point I remember coming home and my friends that were staying at my house with me, uh, said, why are you going if it makes you feel bad? And I'm like, Oh, good point. So I stopped going to that group and also went to, um, Start going to uh, a faith-based grief group at church, and that was really way more helpful for me. And I've also seen that as being a really important part of our, you know, well-being um, today. So, anyways, that's how I really started was just researching and trusting your gut. Like I think you know, we as people, and I and you know, we were trust me, I'm just like. A, a normal person living my life in Minneapolis. But it, when you, your gut and your instinct, and there's nothing like, you know, I always say like a mom's instinct who knows her kids when they go to the doctor or, you know, that's really where it started from.
0: Yeah, that's a powerful story. And, you know, um, to piggyback off of that, um, these support groups you're talking about, um, you know, Big Pharma, Um, did the same thing with pain support groups Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the opioid pandemic and all that, which basically was created by big pharma. um, I guess what they call the opioid epidemic or whatever, but it was basically created by big pharma and the FDA and they went around, they set up these support groups for these, you know, for pain societies and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, unless you really looked at, who was promoting them. You just thought it was, you know, a great place to hang out. And, you know, next thing you know, um, you know, everybody's addicted to opioids, kind of like the the SSRIs or the antidepressants you're talking about. I mean, doctors prescribe those for everything, anxiety, sleep, depression, hot flashes. That's right. I forgot about that.
2: Yeah. You you must be, you must take care of the hot flashes with a, yeah,
0: well, that makes right. sense right oh <laughs> right exactly i mean talk about trusting your intuition it's like i mean seriously how do they expect us to trust them as healthcare professionals it's like really you're a woman that lacks estrogen and having hot flashes you want us to prescribe you want us to dispense as pharmacists a medication for depression now how does that make any sense yet yeah, we're supposed to buy that as 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 um healthcare professionals i don't know yeah, how you can.
1: I mean, it's really crazy when you and you think about this when um, so one of the things that obviously we did right after this is we went out to D.C. to try to get like hearings, get warnings put on these drugs because that became our mission. Right. We were going to get warnings um, put on this drug. And so I remember um, and eventually we worked really um, closely with the House Energy and Commerce. And also like I mean, again, when you're on a mission, you just you won't take no for an answer. But I remember like at the FDA when they eventually, you know, the first warning they put on at these hearings um, that happened in 2004 is they put for kids 18, right? 18 and under. Then we were like, no, 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 we need to get it all ages. And then they eventually got it to 24. But I remember thinking, wait, how does your body know that I'm 24 today and 25 tomorrow? So I'm no longer at risk. How do I know that I'm getting with her PMDD, which is um, apparently, you know, is um, premenstrual dysphonic disorder to do with cramps and stuff. That was another made up kind of disease that they used. I believe it was Paxil. They re formulated and relabeled it like Seraphim um, gave it a, and it got a patent extension, etc. but it was really the antidepressant. So you're getting it for that where you can literally take it two weeks on, two weeks off. I'm like, no, isn't it? I thought the most dangerous is um, of when these, you know, side, potential side effects and harms and the risks um, are when you first go on, go off. Like all of that made no sense. It was like, this is like a magic pill that knows like you said, hot flashes. I mean, where is common sense? Like, I'm going to go back to what my dad taught us as kids, like common sense, like common sense would say that doesn't even make sense.
0: No, I mean, and and the, the worst part about it is that some of the most educated people in the nation, i.e. doctors, buy off on it you know some pharmaceutical rep comes into their office and tells them about it and the FDA says it's approved for it so i'm just going to wash my hands it's my responsibility and it's got to be good and the FDA said it it's got to be good and yes. and that's part of the problem and you know um,
1: that's a huge part of the problem i remember so again being one of those people who believed and trusted doctors i was shocked in this work when I found out that doctors don't learn about how the FDA works, right? They had not, you know, I, at this point I had been going out to FDA advisory committees, showing up, I went to every single panel. We didn't have social media, it didn't exist back then. So you had to actually get on a plane. I was on a plane almost every two weeks, like, um, cause I was like determined. Um, cause there was no way this was how Woody's legacy was gonna go down in my mind. And so going out there, remembering um, when I learned, wait, you doctors don't have a course in how the FDA works, like how you don't have to go and watch advisory committees. You don't learn about all the um, fast tracking and all the mechanisms in how drugs can come to the market. And right now, the big thing is all about fast tracking after the AIDS crisis and it's, um, you know, like breakthrough therapy and, you know, these are all ways and the emergency use authorization, like, what does that really mean, DAC? And they don't even know. And so if you don't know or if you've never been to any of these, like, advisory committees where you see and you brought it up um, with, like, the pain society, but, like, during the open public hearing where people can come from the public and speak, a lot of them are coming from organizations that you think are representing the disease or the patient and all of that. So, you know, you think they, they're also for it. So doctors are like, if they're hearing, oh, well, you know, the National Alliance for Mentally Ill believes this is a good product, not realizing those are really extensions of the marketing department. Right. And so how does like, how as a, so Mm -hmm. that was like my biggest shock as, but then I started to realize, oh yeah, it's kind of my whole, thing now called selling sickness. But if you don't understand I mean, it's smart. It's a brilliant move. Keep it out of the med schools. Keep it out of there. No one will question you got it. Um, Something I just learned this year that a lot of tenured professors and stuff, they have to raise their own money, part of their salary through funding for grants. And then I started learning, wait, these companies actually give to the institutions that a lot of them work at and and then that's who's the key opinion leaders who are writing all the journal articles that are ghost written and doctors don't even know what that means like all of this they should have an entire course on um selling sickness or uh you know the critical thinking in medicine which are if they thought about all these things Maybe they would get it, probably scare them actually, <laughs> because they have to trust somebody because there's so much medicines out there. But that's why I think we come back down to uh, the individual and how we have to be our own best advocates for our families and also question the narrative of do I need a pill for this? And we've created a culture, you know, uh, that is about the quick fix. We want, we don't want to do the hard work. It's just easier to take a pill. The doctors have a solution. And I'm sure there's something with going to a doctor, you don't want to be told, oh, you just need to get some exercise. You're thinking, if I'm a a you know, a patient, or I like to call us customers, I go to the doctor, I want to get like get something for my time, right? So I think there's a lot of pieces in there to unpack or brought us to where we're at today.
0: Well, I think one of the things is is that as healthcare professionals, my My and Janet's goal, like for this podcast, for instance, is just to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. Mm -hmm. Don't trust us. Don't trust pharmacists. Don't trust your doctor. Do your own research. And, um, you know, do you really need that? I mean, if you look at our society, most drugs, honestly, probably 75% plus of the drugs have been that we use mostly now have been made in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um but the pharmaceutical industry is really only it's less than a hundred years old, really. So what did we do a hundred years ago? We had these same well, some of these disease states we didn't have because they're made up. Mm -hmm. First of all, big pharma is good about making up a, a disease state so they can treat it. Um I mean, a good example is IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. I mean, seriously. What kind of diagnosis is that? I mean, let's face it. If we eat wrong, any of us, if we eat wrong, Kim, we're going to get irritable bowel syndrome. You don't need a drug. You know, it's just a
1: lot of, there's a lot of money to be made in that drug. Of course.
0: You're talking about medical schools being funded by big pharma. Pharmacy schools and medical schools, their biggest funding by far and away is from big pharma. And that was by design. And I don't know, I'm imagining you've done your own research on this, but when you look up um, Rockefeller, have you heard about mm-hmm. Rockefeller starting um, funding to med schools and things like that? Because a lot of the drugs originally were from the petroleum industry. Um, Cause that, that's how they were synthesized. And you look at that and it just, and when did things change back in the 1900, early 1900s mm-hmm. is when it really, you know, the FDA came out in the early 1900s Um and essentially the FDA has become um, an arm. And this is what RFK talks about. Mm-hmm. It's it just become an arm of big pharma. Um, you know, I mean, most of a majority of the FDA's funding comes from big pharma. So you don't think there's going to be some, you know, um, you know, conflict of interest there because of that? I mean, come on.
1: Yeah. You know? I mean, I, that was one of the things, again, because mm-hmm. so much of this, I learned as I was going going through, right? And that's kind of my mission now is to help educate. Because I have the same goal as you do, which is educate the public. Because I don't think this—it's change—is going to happen within the system that created nope. the problem. Yep. The change is going to happen from bottom up, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. So from you doing this, um, it, you know, getting out to the layperson and making and having us like stop pause question and do your research before taking action. And I you know look back to you know I wish we did that but I had no idea. But when I learned that the FDA got funding I think it was in 1992 that the whole prescription drug user fee act Pdufa started which was basically during it was a result of the AIDS crisis where all the pressure came from the public that the FDA took too long to approve the medications. So they started this whole system, Padufa, it's a must pass legislation. People don't realize it's every five years and um, doctors sure don't know that, right? I don't even think the, the person, you know, the public does but it's every five years and now it's almost, I think it's like 60% of the FDA is funded from big pharma and that's to make it faster. So, you know, it becomes, they're the real um, patient or, you know, they're the real client of the FDA. And, you know, it's under the guise of public health. I now, believe it or not, I sit on the FDA, one of the FDA advisory committees. So I see it from inside out now, um, sitting on the regulatory uh, at the table, on the psychopharmacologic Drugs Advisory Committee, which was the same advisory committee that in 91 took, um, took money from pharma and said there was no um, link between this. Um, I sit on one of the, that same committee today as consumer rep. And it's a very different perspective sitting there and seeing the information, seeing how it all connects together with from like a safety perspective, but also Um, I think I'm a unique on that role because my whole background, I never set out to do this. My whole background and I'm still in it is advertising and marketing. So I understand business. Like I understand like even when the goal of the FDA and these advisors, it's to get marketing approval, right? The whole premise of these clinical trials is to get it approved and put on the market so that the companies can start marketing it to doctors. And, when they, if that's the goal, well, then you're going to have to think. Well, of course, we're going to talk about benefits. We're going to figure out how to get the trials to give us the results that we need. And and do people really? When I say people, I should say the advisory. Even like when controversial products come before our committee, do the people on the committee really understand? They're looking at like, oh, the the um, the p value is you know whatever, but. And sure, it shows a little, a little benefit. But does that? What does that translate in real life, right? For you and I, um, who and you as pers- you know that that are filling these medications, like what does that really do for the consumer once it goes to millions of people? Um, I've seen that safety is definitely a step a stepchild. Like it's automatically with these committees when there are issues that have come before us with safety it is an assumption that the safety will get picked up once it's on the market and dealt with then by the members on the committee and so you're sitting there and one of the things that we have an opportunity to do is we get to vote you know do you think that the benefits outweigh the risks you know or whatever the question is and if you actually and it's why i think that it's so important that you know, even for med school, even if they watched one of these meetings to understand how this, how it works, um, they would see that when they hear, because we all get a chance to vote, then we afterwards go around and describe why we voted a certain way. And you'll often hear the yeses saying, oh, I think, you know, we need another product, blah, 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 blah. But the safety I don't think is there. But they still voted yes, right? And then they'll come to me where I'll be like, Well, for the exact reason they voted yes, I voted no because the safety isn't there. And so I can't put something in good conscience on the market, vote for something. And if if you look at some of the drugs that have come before my committee have really had safety issues or they've used some kind of fast-tracking mechanism, which again, what I used to think is the FDA was the gold standard of two double-blinded placebo-controlled studies that's not the norm anymore. That's not what's happening. And so these drugs that are coming on the market and all these new ones that are being advertised and sold as breakthrough, are they really breakthrough or are they using, is that really uh, being hijacked from a regulatory way of going to coming to market using a fast tracking mechanism?
0: Right. Right. Well, when you talk about the little bit of difference that some of the drugs make um, big pharma is good about in their studies, using absolute risk versus relative risk.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So, and just to explain what that means is let's say there's a a hundred people. And there's a hundred people in a study and um, um, 50 of them got placebo and 50 of them got the drug. And let's say that let's say it's to prevent heart attacks. Statins are a good one. Um, let's say two people in the group had a heart attack on placebo and only one person in the group um, had a heart attack with, with the drug. So they'll look at, they'll compare the one to the two and they say, look at that. It decreased cardiovascular risk by 50%, two versus one. When in reality it was one out of 99 people. So it was less than 1% it decreased cardiovascular risk. And that's the exact same way they did the study with the COVID vaccine, too. Um, And it was even well under those numbers, as we all know now. And, of course, then what they did, too, with the COVID vaccine, the same thing they did when they were doing um, testing with AZT is uh, with with, uh, the first, basically the first drug to treat AIDS was they, they, after, after they got got to market and it was decreasing, it was so effective, you know, with these numbers I'm stating, it was effective like that. They're like, well, we can't, you know, um, with any conscious really keep giving the placebo. We have to treat the placebo group too because this drug is so good at preventing COVID or preventing um, whatever disease. We've got to treat the placebo group. Well, then once you treat the placebo group, then, then you have no... No,
1: no, side
0: control group. no, no control group for side effect comparisons.
1: Yeah, but That's it was exactly totally. what they wanted. Well, you know, it's so funny. Like um, you just brought up COVID vaccine. So I have never done, because there are a lot of people who would do really good work in the vaccine safety and I don't have kids. So it never really was my, you know, what I have been working on. I've worked on a lot of other drugs, but not the vaccine. However, when COVID um, the vaccine came out, There were so many red flags for me that started out with, you know, it was being rushed to market and it was going to come up like a novel, like it was going to be on in what, you know, the shortest six months or whatever the the trials were. But then when I learned, uh, well, there were many things, but when I heard they're given, it wasn't ethical to keep this treatment from people in the placebo group. So they had to give them, they offered it up. Well, what, 99%, 95, 8, 99% of people in both, like in all the drug groups took the drug. Well, I was like, wait a minute. Like, that's the whole premise for clinical trial. Like, I don't care. It's not, I don't mean to be mean, um, ethical or not. Like the reality is if you agree, and it's the same with any clinical trial that you want to go into, right? If you agree to go into a clinical trial as a participant, that's kind of the deal. Like you may get the drug, you may not. Like that's part of the deal. And so the fact and the companies know that, that's like one that I mean, that's clinical trial one oh one. But yeah. when you take away when you take away the control group, you have nothing to compare to to know, you know, like what we're seeing now. What is it? Gosh, it's our I can't even believe it's been time has flown or stop to still, I don't know what you call it during the pandemic, but you look now and you have all these things that are arising, like um, between, you know, increased deaths or like the turbo cancers, or is there a link? Like if had we had the control group, we could actually see if it really was, you know, right now it's easy to say, well, Oh, it's all you anti-vaxxers saying this. Yeah. If we had the control group, we could actually have, Answer some of these pretty major questions.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all it's all by design. So tell us, you know, fast forward, you know, seventeen years when, um, you know, when the COVID thing started. Um, started. It sounds like you started questioning some things. How did how did your background um, help with you kind of look at this? And you know, were there some parallels between the? The antidepressants and the COVID vaccine.
1: Yeah, well, it's a good question because I've thought a lot about it. Um, When the first, literally, when I heard that was being fast tracked, and I was like, "You're giving these companies complete legal immunity for like for um, any future harms," and especially somebody like a Pfizer, who's one of the most egregious, um, companies of paying fines in the past, right. For doing illegal marketing for off label promotion, you know, the clinical trials that they ran in Africa, like you're giving them complete legal immunity. So that was like one red flag. Cause I did have a big, um, wrongful death failure to warn lawsuit against Pfizer. So I knew how they operated. So that was like one, um, thing that I thought was interesting. The other was, the fact that it was completely safe and effective, like literally completely safe and effective. That was the narrative that we were told and a one size fits all. Well, since when is a body ever, I mean, this should have been a doc, like I have to say to a doctor, even if it's not the person for medical system, for them to not question something when they said a one size fits all, like to me, like that just doesn't even make sense. but so that was interesting. And again, when it being in marketing, where all of a sudden they were using techniques that we use to get people to go to, you know, um sales promotion techniques like bring your vax card in and get a donut a day for a year at Krispy Kreme. Unreal. <laughs> Right. Are you kidding me? Like, And then it became like a chance to win a million dollars for a lottery um, from one of the states to giving low-income kids in neighborhoods $200 gift cards or for parents. Like, of course, people who like $200 is a lot of money for somebody, but not to understand that you're ex- exchanging it for your health, potentially okay. for health issues. But, you know, I started watching that, and then I was watching – that you couldn't question, right? You couldn't question, um, or you were called like an anti-vaxxer. But the same thing happened with antidepressants. So uh, how many times, like I had testified before the U.S. Senate and was invited by Ted Kennedy. It was a big deal to do with PADUFA, the drug, you know, I had all these ideas for FDA reform. Afterwards, I had National Alliance for uh, Mentally Ill, NAMI, walked around to every one of those senators on the Senate Health Committee and said, don't believe a word she's saying. She's a Scientologist. And so I saw the discrediting of being called a Scientologist because I was speaking out of the dangers on antidepressants. And same thing like calling out questions with the, just questions, not even saying don't take it, nothing, just asking questions. And you are automatically quickly labeled an anti-vaxxer or a trumper or all these mean things to just kind of like dismiss all you. So that was another thing. And then um, one thing that I thought was interesting. So with antidepressants, you know, Earlier in our conversation, I mentioned Dr. David Healy. Dr. David Healy has, I mean, he's run clinical trials. He had healthy volunteer clinical trial trials of antidepressants. He had people that tried killing themselves um, that were healthy. Then he has been an expert in legal litigation, has been inside the files. You would think that the FDA would want to hear from somebody who might have some other interests like some other um, background or information that could help inform if they were truly doing their job for the public. So that was, and, but they didn't. So David Healy during all those antidepressant hearings, he was given three minutes to tell what he knew the same amount of time I was given and all the other public hearing. I'm like, so that was one thing. So then when I started looking at the COVID facts and you had all these reputable scientists and researchers asking questions and they couldn't, pre- there, there couldn't be no debate. It was like, this is one science, we have one science. I'm like, again, being a lay person, marketing person, um, I was like, I thought science was the constant challenging of a premise, right? And you tease it out and then, you know, and you wanna have that dis- you know discord and tension because that's what it is. To make it better i mean so i thought but you know so those were all some of the things that really raised my flag and another thing that i we were walking away from principles of informed consent with the vaccine and patients were not told and we instead we were sold fear of dying there was no like age just you know like health and age stratification discussions. It was, there were so many things that I have heard and now, you know, uh, Woody matters when I go out and that's the organization that I started after Woody. And it really represents the voices of those who live every day with the consequences of a failed drug safety system. So I'm out there advocating now for the injured. Um, And one of the first things that they say, had they known that there was they were completely on their own if something happened that would have been enough for them to maybe stop pause ask you know questions or but they weren't or they had mandated so then you know people had to choose between something so there's so many things that went wrong and should never have happened
0: well you you have to question I, I, so many like you said so many red flags um, you know, when you're saying, distrust the science, don't, don't question it. And, and then, I mean, another red flag is just, you know, if you've got to mandate something, I mean, if you've got to mandate something, how good is it?
2: Right. I, I mean, seriously. Right. And this I mean, is the first time not to interrupt, but no, go. the first time ever we heard, give this to pregnant women, yeah. Yeah. which is unheard of. You never give to a pregnant person anything until it's been teased out and been on the market and we know it's safety. And all of a sudden we just throw all these things out the door. Yeah. I. And, I, 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 to were,
0: I, I Unreal. I mean, there were um, OB doctors that were, you know, in contact with us and communication with us talking about what, what we thought of it because they were still questioning it too. It's like, wait a minute, as a doctor, I was taught, we don't give anything, to, yeah. to to women that are pregnant, but I mean, they were being shunned professionally. Right. It's like, oh, you're just a crazy anti-vaxxer. If your question is for your pregnant women, you know, it's like oh, I mean,
1: you know, that's sounds real. not hospitals that
0: they practiced yeah. at or just treating them like like they were, you know, you know, just just were no not you know not knowledgeable about stuff. I mean, and it's like really when you look back, it's like you know, just rational thinking. Yeah. Honestly.
1: Yep. And I think you're you're so right when you, you know, when you think about, to your point, um, saying mandates, right? Like for a product to be mandated, you got to stop and go, why do you have to be man? Like, why are you being mandated? So I think that was like a rational thing. But then as a physician, uh, and for you not to be able to do your best work, isn't it about the patient-doctor relationship? Mm-hmm. And what if... You're like, as a pregnant, say you're pregnant, you're like asking, do I really want to put this in? And the doctor's like, oh yeah, it's good. Like not even, you don't even like have a conversation or you're afraid to go against. I mean, I learned, start learning again, as my late husband always said, Kim, if you want to get to the bottom of something, always follow the money. And so when I started learning that um, the healthcare organizations were getting funding from government and so then that also keeps the doctors to play, um, you know, play co- nicely or quiet, or then they used a certain, you know, a few people, like uh, I live up in Minnesota. So Scott Jensen was completely, you know, by just speaking out, like trying to get medical license thro- um, thrown out. Like you just went to school for all this many years. You are, you don't want your license taken away. And that's what, and Peter McCullough, like doctors who are doing their work. And that was, so then they use those examples. And so I think, you know, when I look at people that are in the healthcare that do have that opportunity to have those conversations, they have bills, they have kids, they have, you know, like their livelihoods. So it was this really well controlled system that kept people from speaking out. And we need the people to speak out and we need to be able to have these conversations because our lives, now all of our lives, like economically or whatnot, you know, really come back to being able to have these. And anytime we are being censored to not be able to speak truth, we do need to take a step back and look and dig deeper of Why would this be happening?
0: Well, or really, I'll let you go, Janet, a little uh, um, later. Um, But really, you know, you say when we're not allowed to speak truth. One of the things that they were saying was that we weren't speaking truth. Here's the reality. We are not allowed to speak, period, whether it's truth or not truth. That's a problem. I mean, we should all be able to state our opinions and, you know, let other people believe it or not. We should not be censored by um, the government, especially, and, um, you know, so, or social media. And, you know, we are, we interviewed Scott Jensen twice, actually. We've met him in person also. And, um, you know, on our interview with him, we had a podcast and I mean, there were people talking about, you know, that he's a quack and look at all these complaints against his license. And, and you know, 30 years of practice, he had no complaints against his license. And then during COVID, he's got five of them. And of course, none of them are from patients. They're all from other healthcare professionals that mm-hmm. didn't like what he was doing. Now, and this is what, what I always think about when, when I think about any decision or any law or any regulation, it's, it's about not what it does to me, but what does it do to somebody else, an individual liberty? And, and Scott Jensen said this, yeah, t- today they're going after my license. But next it's you. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously. And, and th- that's what you have to question. It's like and I don't, whether you're a doctor or whether you're a pharmacist or whether you're a, a person cutting hair. Because most people that cut hair now have to have a license in a state. And there were people that had their license taken away because they didn't want to stop cutting hair during COVID. And so they mm-hmm. took their license. I mean um, – you know, so that's why we all have to fight because it, it, you know, it might be me today, but it's going to be somebody else next.
1: A hundred, a hundred percent, you know, a hundred percent. Like I think about when people say, oh, well, this side, whatever, even politics, you know, for me, yeah. um, when I looked at this and I still don't understand why it, there aren't more hearings on the, the actual vaccine because I, just actually found some old old footage from a hearing in uh, 2004, and it was a six hour hearing um, from the House Energy and Commerce Committee, where they called in all the executives from the um, antidepressant makers and the FDA because they withheld 12 out of 15 studies, you know, showing placebo outperformed the drug, and um, and so I was watching that and looking at what's happening today. And I was involved at one of the Senate hearings. Um, Senate Ron Johnson had something where I um, got to be a part of it. It was November of 2021 and invited all the you know members. Nobody showed up. And I was like, what is going on that we even in Congress like and so people are like, oh, that's because that's a Republican and all that. And I'm like, OK, it's this now, but it will be something yep. else that it might affect you. So it's not about you might be in agree and awesome. If you're in agreement, have a great, but don't, don't be surprised when something turns and it's now on you. And then you're like, well, how come now I can't speak my mind. No, this is why it's important for all of us to be able to have, and that's why we live in our country um, is to have these conversations and not be told we can't censored. Like, all the, you know, I hear a lot of the Vax injured who are just, they were like just living life and telling their stories now. And then they're the stories like Facebook and hearing that the government was in cahoots with keeping that the injured from the public because you don't want to scare people. I'm like, yeah. what is that? These right. are people who did the right, did the right thing. Um, that you ask them, and now you're like not letting them have a platform. And, you know, I saw that, again, I'm going with all my parallels, but um, with, you know, I see that all the time with um, even litigation with drug companies, that what do they do? What's one of the first things they wanna do if if you are able to even hold a drug company accountable is in, if it doesn't go to court or to trial, you know, if they settle, they want to take your, you can never tell your story again. They
0: want to silence you.
1: They want to silence you. And so yes. think about that. Like, that's how, that's how we live. That's how humans live is that's how we've always lived is by being able to tell stories. And, you know, and now we're having these people tell us that that's false and misleading. And, um, you know, and to, to, what is false and misleading? just that it doesn't match your narrative
2: today. Exactly.
0: No. False or misleading to who?
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And
0: Jenny, you had something to say?
2: I did. You know, the sad thing about how the direction this is going, and and, and this is something I guess I was fortunate enough to experience when I was in school in pharmacy school, is that we were taught a certain way. And, and, and in fact, I remember an essay question about why we didn't use beta blockers in a heart attack or, or a, a MI. And actually that was wrong. What we were taught was wrong. By the time I was out in rotations, that was thrown out the door and they were using it and it was working. So the problem is, is that when we aren't able to question in the medical setting that the, the brightest people who are actually taking care of these people every day are having tools taken away from them because somebody else is telling them how to practice. So when we were talking about the patient and, and the doctor relationship, that doctor's not giving the toolbox anymore. He's giving a check the box, and the public doesn't realize that. And you know what we know as standard or the correct care for somebody today might be thrown out the window because there's a better way. And we are taking that off the table and we're not even allowing them to talk about it. And one of the things that Dr. Scott Jensen talked about that Sean and I were at least able to experience is they had round tables where doctors would talk to one another and say, how's this working? I'm having this problem. And they would debate and they would talk it out and they would hash, you know, and then you could call up a colleague or they were using each other as sounding boards. Boy, now, if you do that, you're crazy. You're crazy.
0: Yeah, there, there, there's a protocol. You, you follow a standard of care. You don't question anything else. This is what you do. It's like, well, okay. I mean, then how are we ever going to progress?
1: Yeah, you, to your point, like you learning that you didn't use it, but as time went on, you know, then you found, oh, well, actually that does work, right? So another thing that I thought was interesting is sitting on the advisory committee, there was a drug we were reviewing, Nuplazid, which is for Parkinson's psychosis. And, and it was an interesting drug. Um, but one of the things that I had done before we were reviewing it is, you know, cause I assume using breakthrough, they're gonna, you know, they'll figure out how to get it approved on the benefit, right? right? But I went and listened to Wall Street and I wanted to understand the full business. Like how does Wall Street look at this um, potential approval? Cause it was a brand a break, make a break for this biotech. And anyways, they um, in the in my research, I one of the um, a bunch of the um, analysts were talking about how this drug had the potential to be a two to three billion dollar drug off label a year. So in our hearing, so I, you know, I was like, ooh, that's interesting. So during our advisory committee, I asked the FDA, how are you going to be ensuring that because Wall Street analysts said this has the potential to be a two to three billion off? You know off label and they said oh well we're not in the um practice of telling doctors um how to practice medicine that's mm-hmm. not our that's not our job
0: uh, but they are
1: but yes yeah, So that's, <laughs> what that's what so then i was like so then well, when would they want to be yeah with the whole like um ivermectin hydrochloroquine like wait all of a sudden you guys issued letters i thought And so I always tell everybody, I go, go back into that transcript and you can pull out the line where the FDA said this, because I'm like, you are not in the practice. I mean, you are not in the business of coming between the practice and telling doctors, you can't have it both ways. Like if you're going to let them use off label, which is what a lot of these companies have done and promoted and gotten in big trouble, you can't then tell them, and you're not going to do anything about them there. You can't tell them that they can't use these drugs because to your point of, if we're going to, you know, what businesses don't do this? Like I think about my business, I have a really big production. I don't know, like, should we use this person, this person, how do we do it? I, I rely on my peers to help me kind of like think things through. Maybe there's a better approach. And so you take that tool from a, um, from a physician where they can't even question or use bounce ideas like, hey, I hear you have a lot of success. You're keeping people out of the hospital. What are you doing? Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you want to know that?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: There's right. so much. I keep coming back. All the word that keeps coming back to me is like, oh, my God, this is just so common sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's common. Really-
0: common sense isn't so common anymore. And we're not supposed to use our common sense. Just oh. follow. follow the protocol. Follow the standard. Check the box.
2: No, and you're supposed to report people to your health department who do not follow suit. So if we saw a prescriber prescribing ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for the purposes outside of what they normally did, then you're supposed to report them. Yeah. Which never, ever have I had a letter from the health department saying that's what you're supposed
0: to do. Until then.
2: Until then. Wow. Well, so you saw the big, I mean, you were
1: encouraged to, you know, going back to kindergarten, tattletale. Like oh oh, yeah. Yeah. In a big way you don't like somebody, it's what an easy way to like retaliate against somebody. I can go and work on you.
0: And that's what governments have done in history. Um, you know, they've used people against other people. And you know, they say, well, if they're not doing things right, you know, make sure you turn your neighbor in. I mean, that's what governments have done, dictators have done to take control of a society. So why that's why you have to be completely vigilant
1: yeah absolutely history. absolutely and you know i i hope that we've learned um you know but it seems like it was will there be another pandemic that we're going to run into this have people i'm hoping some eyes have um you know w- woke up um i hope that people will stop and question i mean i think the fact that people are you know questioning the getting boost this continual booster every like three four months Uh, you know maybe that'll be enough to somebody but you know i just feel like there's so many lessons that could be learned if we actually could have honest conversations not dismiss people and and come together from people who even were big supporters of the vaccine and wanting to do it because they, for whatever reason, you know, let's, I mean, we need to have these conversations in a safe environment that we're not being, um, that's the only way we'll learn, right? right. How do we do it better next time?
0: So Kim, as we wrap this podcast up, do you have a website or something that we can uh, direct people to so um, they can find out more information about you and your advocacy work?
1: Sure. Um, Kimwitzak.com. Uh, K-I-M-W-I-T-C-Z-A-K.com. I also have a, I'm on Twitter, um, Woody Matters. I'm glad that Elon has let freedom come back a little right. bit on Twitter. The bird's out of the cage. And um, I also have a sub stack that I finally got onto that called acceptable collateral damage. But I actually put unacceptable because people like Woody and all the injured are considered acceptable collateral damage, meaning the cost of doing business. But for us, there's somebody's love in their life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Kim, I want to thank you so much for what you've done. You've obviously put a lot of work into this, um, a lot of resources and time. And we need more people like you because without people advocating for others um this is never going to change and i think one of the good things that did happen during you know the 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 government created uh covid pandemic is that there was a lot of evil exposed and there were things that jan and i were questioning already and some of those things have just been exposed now so um that that i can look at as being um I, i'm as an opportunity for us to you know educate people about what did go on and that it really wasn't anything new it's been happening for years
1: yeah i think that's the thing that so many people have said to me they're like wait and and even some of the physicians that are now coming out and they're like realizing to what you said i think at the start of our podcast that you didn't that they didn't learn or you were taught one thing and then you started to see you know your eyes were um, opened, well, they're, when they start realizing like, oh my God, everything, what if everything that I've been taught, what if this has been going on? And so I think that's the benefit is making, because I think it'll make us all better, um, better, not only, you know, providers, you know, you guys given, um, which I love that you have your podcast, because I think it's really important that people that have the ability like yourself to have podcasts is that you're using your tools to, to help educate the people. And um, so I want to say thank you for having your podcast and Lori connecting us because I think this was a great conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to thank you for being on. And to continue this conversation, uh, Monday, our regularly scheduled podcast, uh, 1230 to 130 Pacific Standard Time, we're going to have Harvey Risk on and R-I-S-C-H, and he is um, a doctor, and he is going to be talking about medical freedom. Um, And that's really, you know, if we don't have, I just, I like talking about freedom, period, individual liberty. But if we don't have um, freedom, Medical freedom, our own liberty to decide what goes into our body, and, and then we have got nothing, and and so we we definitely have to fight for that. So thank you, Kim, for helping us realize our goal today to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. I really appreciate
1: it. Oh, thanks for having me. It was really fun.
0: All right, so thank you, listeners and viewers, for tuning into Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune into our regularly scheduled podcast, 12, 3 to one thirty Pacific Standard Time Monday. Uh, thanks for tuning in.